Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm sure I would have looked for opportunities to steal food. You would have been there with Henry stealing the bacon. <laughs> <laughs> The Greeley expedition to Ellesmere Island was one of the great tragedies of polar exploration, a story that ended in starvation, cannibalism, and bitter controversy. We know the events of this story, but do we know how it felt to be there? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Laura Waterman talks about her novel, Starvation Shore, which relies upon memoirs, letters, and diaries to reconstruct the life of the Greeley Party as it attempted to survive impossible conditions. Waterman is a climber, conservationist, and author who's written many books with her husband, Guy Waterman, about mountain history, climbing, and environmental ethics. Her memoir, Losing the Garden, tells the story of her marriage to Guy and his decision 19 years ago to end his life on the summit of Mount Lafayette. Laura Waterman, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Michael, for having me. So in 1881, a party of 25 men under the command of an army lieutenant, Adolphus Greeley, left New York and headed to the Arctic, to the very top of Ellesmere island to establish a fort there, Fort Conger. What were they trying to do? Basically, what they needed to do was learn more about the Arctic. The idea was to establish stations that would be manned, and people were to keep records, meteorological data, some exploring but the pole was definitely out. And, and it seems kind of strange looking back on it that they chose this guy, Adolphus Greeley, who he was a you know lieutenant in the Signal Corps of the Army. I mean, he had experience putting up telegraph lines and they put him in command of this expedition of men in the high Arctic. I mean, granted, he was a man of science of sorts, but it doesn't seem at first light like he would be a very good fit for this kind of job. That's one of the interesting things about one of the mysteries almost about the whole expedition. I think that they had another man in in mind, Colonel Gustavus Stone, to lead it. And to go back a little further, Captain Howgate, who wanted to colonize the Arctic, Greeley lived in his house for 
about five years when he was in the single court. And so Greeley was a protege, actually, of Hellgate. And um, Mm. Hellgate's idea was not connected to the International Polar Year. Down dropped out, and that's when Greeley was asked to step step in. When you're writing in your novel, it's clear that during the first year of the expedition that things are going pretty well. They get a lot of work done. They really do commit themselves to the goals of the International Polar Year. They're taking all of those measurements Mm -hmm. that you were mentioning of barometric pressure and temperature and uh, studying wildlife. But things start to go bad in the second and third years. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Well, actually, I think things went bad from the very beginning. Hmm. I think the men were excited to be there. They knew they were doing something that was groundbreaking. I mean, in a sense, the way I look at it, it was like sending a spaceship to Mars. I think there was a lot of bad luck at the beginning. For instance, Greeley was pretty much forced to bring the doctor named Dr. Pave. Greeley was not able to actually pick his physician. And it turned out that Pave, he was not a part of the military, and he was not under military command. And Greeley's and Pave's personalities were like oil and water. Hmm. Pavy saw himself as an upper-class guy and somewhat of a bohemian, and Greeley was, uh, he was not a West Pointer. He came from a quite, you know, a working-class family, and Pavy didn't like taking orders from him uh, for those reasons. So they rubbed each other the wrong way from the very beginning. And then on top of that, you you had kind of external factors that made it increasingly desperate. You had the failure of a relief expedition in the following year after they were they established Fort Conger. Can you talk about that? Yes. It was set up in Washington before they left that an expedition would be set up the first summer, which would have been 1882, to relieve the men who were there. I mean, if some wanted to come back. And new supplies, more food, and then built into the plan was that if that expedition or relief expedition didn't turn up in 1882, another relief expedition would be set up the next year in 1883. And that failed as well. And so then Greeley was left with a very tough decision of what to do. They could have stayed on pretty successfully for a third winter. They had enough food. They were actually supplied for three years. And they could have shot more musk oxen, or they could have come down the Ellesmere Island coastline, either by sledge, or they could have taken to the open boats and come down by sea. And both of those were risky ideas. I mean, and, the coast um, of, uh, sorry to interrupt, the coastline of Ellesmere Island is incredibly rugged terrain, right? And you have, uh, during this time, Smith Sound is, is covered with pack ice. I mean, it wouldn't have been a, an easy retreat. It wouldn't have been. And also, they could have found themselves on the ice foot, and 
they could have been detached from the land. <laughs> yeah, it would have been very risky. But taking to the open boats uh, was, in a way, just as risky. But greatly, I think he felt that what the people in Washington, his superiors in Washington, wanted him to do was to come down the coast. And he knew about depots that had been established on the Greenland side as well as on the Ellesmere side. And he himself, in fact, had left cairns with food in them on the mm. Ellesmere side. So it seemed reasonable, I think. Well, in the first place, he was a stickler for correct military procedure. So I think he he wanted to try to carry out that correct military procedure because I think he was also afraid that if, if he stayed at Fort Conger for another winter and the men began to die, that he could be Kurt Mileshardler. You know, that his career would really be in jeopardy. Yeah. By the winter of 1884, the spring, the winter and then the spring of 1884, Greeley has made his way down the coast to uh, Cape Sabine to establish a, a campsite where they hope to be rescued. And in your novel, Starvation Shore, you spend about half of the book on that final, the, those final months at Camp Clay on Cape Sabine. I was wondering why you decided to focus on that aspect of the expedition? That's a great question. I found, I mean, the reason, and it relates to why I chose to write the story as a novel. I was well aware of Gutridge's book and Alden Todd's book and Powell's book and very fine nonfiction books on the Greeley expedition. But what really interested me was these men, they're basically their emotional lives. Hmm. And I felt I could best tell the story fictionally, in other words, in real time with believable dialogue. And for me, that was the best way to really get into what they were feeling there, what they were going through, how their incredible isolation they were in could be affecting them, not to mention just the harshness of the environment. The fact that they were living with the same 25 guys for two years, two and a half, going on three years, just the harshness, losing light for half the year or more than that, just how it all felt. And I knew that they were, or I began to discover as I launched into the research that I could find out what it was like for them because a number of them had kept journals. And the particular journal that was of real value to me was Sergeant David Brainerd's. He kept a journal from the very mm. first day when the, basically they left the United States till the day of their rescue, June 22, 1884. And this, uh, this final few months were especially brutal. I mean, the party is essentially starving to death. There's uh, cannibalism of members of the crew that have already died. And I find this really interesting what you just said in the sense that you said there's, there's a lot of material here. There's a lot of diaries and letters. There's a lot of secondary literature too on this expedition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you are 
really filling in the gaps in a way that's very interesting, the things that we don't know about those final few months. And I was wondering, as you wrote this, trying to inhabit, let's say, the survivors at Camp Clay, were you surprised at anything? Did you find certain people in that party that you connected to more than others? Uh, That's also a very interesting question that I really haven't thought about. There were certainly people that I connected to, like uh, their photographer, George Rice, and uh, Sergeant Brainerd, who I came to admire greatly. And then I think the beauty of these 25 men is that they exhibit the entire range of human nature from incredible Mm. altruism of Rice and Brainerd to the completely uncaring dastardliness of Sergeant Henry. And Dr. Mm. Pavy was, he was very, a complex personality. I mean, he was definitely out for himself, but on the other hand, he was a very skilled doctor and greatly, as much as he disliked him, said that. I mean, he respected him for the work he did as a doctor with the men. But uh, he's not an attractive personality. And then there's the guys that fall in between, which is basically, you know, you, me, people we know who just behave, you know, we we would attempt to steal a little food um, (laughs) (laughs) from the crumbs that our bed made us dropping. You know, we would shirk our chores. We would frostbite our feet, which some of them did deliberately. Um, There wasn't a lot of that, but there was some. So there was just this, I just, well, that was the beauty of the whole thing. There's this, we were all mirrored. It was quite remarkable, at least I feel it was, that it went through the extreme altruism of Brainerd, who could not let himself not work for the team to Connell, Maurice Connell, the Irishman, a braggadocio and a bully, who said, I'll let the other guys work for me. I'll stay inside today. You know, as I was reading this, I was thinking about the fact that you have written so many books about isolated extreme environments. Um, You lived off the grid for 27 years with your husband, Guy Waterman. And I was thinking about that as I read uh, Starvation Shore. Was there a way in which those experiences shaped the way you thought about or that you wrote this novel? That's really interesting. And again, something I haven't really thought much about, but yet it must have (laughs) shaped it. The thing, yes, Guy and I lived on the first place we generally parked her car. And in the wintertime, our car was parked down in the village, and it was a one and a half mile walk down to the car. And often we were carrying, well, we were doing a huge amount of winter hiking and camping, so we were carrying our packs. And on the way back, we did our grocery shopping occasionally, and so our packs are even heavier going back. And But yet, I think, you know, what made our homestead work was that both of us were 100% committed, and we were going to do the work. The work was going to get done no matter what. So, yeah, that must have played out in, in Brainerd's and Greeley's story. 
But what really drew me to their experience, their harsh experience in the Arctic was my own experience above treeline huh. in the White Mountains in the wintertime. Interesting. Yeah. I wasn't, this might sound a little crazy, but um, I was not concerned at all about my ability to feel to a, to a pretty good degree what those men were going through in terms of cold, wind, even the isolation, certainly the the fog or the whiteouts, because we got comfortable with all of that in the presidentials. And mm. you probably know that our mountains there are incredible training for mountaineers who want to go down to South America or to the Himalayas. And the reason it works for for us, or the reason that kind of training is possible, is that we can just go up to tree line, you know, which is around 4,000, a little above 4,000 feet, stick out our noses, often have the real possibility of reaching a, sum- a summit that's probably not too much more than 1,000 feet uh, further up, and wander around up there, get battered by the wind, and come back down again. So that experience, um, my experience, basically went on as for close to 30 years. I felt I really understood what those men were going through. So that's really interesting because when I read Starvation Shore after reading Losing the Garden, which was a, a book about your marriage to Guy, and that is such a psychological book. Huh. It's so much about... I guess, some of the deep struggles that Guy went through, mm-hmm. feelings of guilt and physical uh, physical pain, mm-hmm. thoughts about his family and your relationship to him and how you both essentially established this marriage where he ended up uh, committing suicide through exposure in the year 2000, was it? Right. And it made me think that and and tell me if I'm reaching here, but it made me think a lot about the people at Camp Clay, particularly hmm. Greeley, who actually goes through his a, a kind of similar set of emotions as he thinks about what he's charged with and whether he's been a success or not. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Gosh, can you connect it a little more for me? Sure. I think I was just thinking that in Losing the Garden, it is really a book about relationships in a extreme environment and relationships mm-hmm. that are under a lot of psychological pressure. And that mm-hmm. is also very much at work in your novel about uh, the Greeley expedition. Well, once again, um, I don't know as I was thinking a great deal about Guy. He was a very different personality from Greeley. Yeah. I see him more in uh, Sergeant Brainerd's camp, in a sense. Interesting. I think I actually would have done very well in the Greeley expedition. I think he would have performed and was a real team player and inspired people. I mean, he was very good at that. You know, the hikes that we did with other people in the White Mountains. He was a wonderful teacher and, you know, had charisma. In a way, he could have I think of him also, um, he had aspects of George Rice, 
who was also charismatic, and the men really were interested in rice. I mean, they, because he had a certain mystery to him. But I can tell you, one thing that drew me very much to the subject of writing this book was actually how I would behave. Interesting. How I would have behaved in their starvation camp. I don't think I would have come off very well. (laughs) (laughs) I would have tried. I I hope I would have tried at any rate. But I'm sure I would have looked for opportunities to steal food. You would have been there with Henry stealing the bacon? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I would have gotten shot, but um, gotten myself shot. But hopefully I would have been, you know, I would have been helpful, but I think I could have gotten discouraged pretty easily, maybe. Um, Perhaps I would have uh, had some kind of self-relevatory breakthrough to, okay, I'm going to clean up my act here and start being more helpful or something like that. But I don't think I would have started out that way. That's interesting. You say that because I think, you know, one of these uh, key questions that people ask about exploration is, is there a kind of explorer type or, or is it that people go into extreme environments and then they're somehow transformed by the experience to become a person that they're not? And Mm -hmm. the impression I get from Starvation Shore is that this is really a very mixed bag of people. This is a Mm-hmm. bunch of people who have a variety of different personalities, some of which hold up better than than others. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, from the reading that I've done, if you don't have the, the personality or the will or the heart or the guts to um, you know, be a team player, your chances are not so good for coming through. If you're just looking out for number one, um, as Connell did, and actually Connell came through, which is very ironic, I find. But if you look at the six guys who didn't survive the expedition, and I think you can throw really in this mix too, they were all working their very best to for the best outcome. Yeah. And I mean, they were giving everything they had to the expedition and to their fellow teammates. That's the important point. They were working for others. In other words, they weren't self absorbed yeah. with their own trying to take care of themselves or grabbing, grabbing the warmest sleeping bag. It's personalities who were willing to give their utmost to have the best chance of coming through. Hmm. Laura Waterman, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Michael. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.